Good afternoon, everyone. Um, hello from LSE virtually. My name is Katerina Dallacura. I am um, uh, an associate professor in international relations at the LSE, and I have worked on uh, religion in international relations as one of my uh, uh, research topics and interests. I am um, uh, very pleased today to be hosting an event on um, religious communities under COVID-19 hosted by the International Relations Department of the LSE jointly with uh, the school as a whole. Uh, it is a truism, of course, that the COVID-19 pandemic has brought about multiple crises on both personal and collective levels. Among these existential crises and questions about relationships between individuals and between individuals and communities have also been very widely prevalent. Change has been dramatic and often very surprising. The shift of worship online, the open challenging or embracing of religious authority, the varied ways in which religious and secular communities and worldviews interact, these are just some examples of these dramatic changes. Now the LSE uh, has put together an excellent panel to discuss aspects of these developments that we have all experienced in some shape and form in the past few months. So I will introduce um, our speakers uh, uh, and uh, after doing so, I will pass uh, the, the floor to each of them who will offer their, uh, their remarks. First, uh, Dr. Jim Walters, who is Director of Religion and Global Society Research Units, uh, a new establishment at LSE, uh, linked to the International Relations Department. Uh, Jim will uh, uh, discuss for us, uh, or will offer his view about the tensions between uh, faith communities and secular authorities, and bring uh, uh, onto the table, into the discussion, his ideas about what the post-secular means. This is a, this is a key concept uh, for the event. Secondly, we will uh, turn to uh, Elizabeth Oldfield, who is uh, director of the think tank uh, Theos. Uh, uh, Elizabeth will uh, talk about one very fascinating post-secular case study uh, through uh, 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 outlining and, 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 and talking to us about a recent report on religiosity in London. And the, uh, and the various responses of London uh, to this and other crises. Thirdly, Professor Azza Karam, who is the Secretary General of Religions for Peace in New York, will offer the global perspective and will uh, focus particularly on the role, role played by religious actors in the global response to the pandemic. Now, uh, a couple of housekeeping points for uh, Twitter users in the audience. The hashtag for today's event is at LSCCOVID19. Uh, the event is being recorded and hopefully we will have the podcast available to us subject to no technical difficulties. Uh, 
Each speaker will uh, talk for about 10 minutes and we will have plenty of time at the end for a Q&A, which will work in the following way. Uh, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen to field questions, which I will then submit to the panelists, either broadly or uh, individually. Please let us know your name and affiliation, and we are, as always, particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni, incoming students, and other friends of the London School of Economics. So without further ado, I will, uh, I will uh, uh, ask uh, Jim Walters to uh, uh, introduce uh, the topic, to, to be our first speaker. Thank you. Thank you very much, Katerina. Um, yes, I particularly want to speak to this question that is in the subheading of our title of whether or not this is uh, the first pandemic of a post-secular age, because post-secular is quite a controversial term and it's one with um, multiple meanings. It can get dominated by a question of whether or not religion is numerically resurgent or numerically in decline. And I know Elizabeth perhaps is going to speak a little bit to that. But I'm more interested in the changing role of religion within the public sphere and uh, what we're seeing in relation to that through the course of this pandemic. On the face of it, uh, we could describe this as the first pandemic of the secular age uh, in the sense that all official government responses, uh, so far as I'm aware of all countries, have been driven by science rather than religious considerations. Uh, governmental responses are taking place on what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame without reference to transcendent or supernatural uh, meanings. So governments are listening to scientists, they're not listening uh, to, for their direct response to clergy. Go back 100 years uh, to the 1918 pandemic and the situation was more mixed. Uh, many countries had virtually uh, a very primitive scientific understanding and little infrastructure for public health to respond to the pandemic. Um, so we see the birth, for example, some scholars argue that um, African Pentecostalism with, its, uh, with a very strong focus on healing was one thing uh, that emerged as a response to um, that uh, pandemic and the huge widespread loss of life that it prompted. In the Western world, there was more scientific uh, understanding. Uh, I mean, it was pretty limited, not an awareness or understanding that really this was a virus, but, but an awareness that uh, they were responding to uh, a scientific challenge. And that was still relatively recent then, go back to 1832, and the official government response uh, to the cholera epidemic was to call for a day of fasting, looking to the church uh, to lead a response. So we're dealing with this today on the secular imminent uh, paradigm, but religion has perhaps been surprisingly present. And I want to explore that through three definitions of uh, the post-secular. The first definition I want to look at is really the sense that, well, religion never went away, but it's being noticed again by people who had stopped paying attention to it. So particularly Western academics, journalists, politicians, perhaps. We are noticing COVID, uh, we are noticing religions because COVID has been one of the primary means through which uh, it has been spread. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Religion is the primary source of mass gatherings around the world, even in a relatively secular country like the UK, up to 18% of the population's gathering regularly for uh, collective worship 
compared, for example, with 3% going to football matches. So fairly early on, we saw cases like the Shincheonji Church of Jesus in South Korea, where 60% of COVID cases in that country were members of that religious group. And at various points through the pandemic, it's fueled some hostility towards religious groups, some prejudice, fears, for example, that uh, Ramadan would be a cause of the spreading of the virus. And Ramadan uh, is one of a number of religious festivals that perhaps we've just noticed a little bit more for these reasons. Um, Easter, Pesach, of course, uh, we went through, and then there's been a lot of discussion in the media just now uh, about Hajj and the decisions taken by the Saudi government to observe the Hajj, um, but only within that country. Faith communities also perhaps uh, when noticing those who um, have been uh, paying attention to faith communities when we weren't, including, for example, some political leaders, um, particularly uh, to appeal to more populist audiences. Donald Trump, for example, talking about uh, reopening churches in time for Easter, which of course proved to be utterly delusional. And in Brazil, Bolsonaro wanting to exempt churches uh, from the lockdown. So that's the first definition. There's been a kind of noticing of religion uh, uh, for various reasons during this pandemic. Second definition is um, something of a pushback against the secular and secular um, encroachment on religious expression and religious life. And that's hardly surprising given that this pandemic has occasioned an unprecedented level of government regulation uh, of a lot of areas of life, but particularly religious expression, to the point of closing down religious worship, something that we haven't seen uh, for a very long time. Now that was almost certainly a necessary thing to do, but it has intensified some existing tensions. I'm thinking, for example, uh, the sense in which uh, the Muslim community has felt under scrutiny and regulation through counter-terrorism uh, measures and the prevent strategy. Uh, and so this a kind of acceleration of some of those uh, resentments. And we've seen the legal challenge by one mosque in Bradford against the government closing down uh, of, 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 of uh, collective worship. But it's true across all religious traditions that we are seeing um, some sectarian, anti-modern uh, instincts. So for example, some conservative Catholic commentators uh, in the US, for example, um, arguing that the closing down of churches is a sort of capitulation to uh, a humanistic emphasis on preserving life at all costs, um, uh, uh, and really saying that religious obligations are of, of no importance. So we've seen a, 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 an exacerbation of some of the resentments that some religious people feel uh, towards secular encroachment on their domain. And then the third definition uh, of the post-secular is not so much about resurgence of religion, so much as a kind of um, crisis of the secular or a disillusionment with the secular and materialism more broadly. Modern life for most people has come to be defined by the intensification of work, consumerism, all of these things uh, associated with modern capitalist culture. And this is the first time in the modern era that all of that has just very abruptly stopped, leaving us asking questions uh, and questions of meaning. So for example, Google searches for prayer have seen an enormous spike. There's a Danish academic who has demonstrated how uh, those Google searches have doubled for every 80,000 new registered cases of, of COVID. 
And some religious leaders have been saying that they've seen huge escalation in participation in online worship uh, and kind of live viewing of live streaming of services and things like that. So those are uh, uh, three definitions of the post-secular that I think have kind of been brought to the fore throughout this pandemic. And um, to close, I just want to talk about challenges going forward, both for governments and for religious communities. So first, um, I think major challenge going forward for government, and it's been around for a while, is how and to what extent it regulates religious communities. What, in a sense, are the non-negotiable non dimensions of citizenship that need to stretch across religious groups and for which government have some responsibility? I've got some concerns about that in relation to some authoritarian regimes uh, around the suppression of religious freedom and the overregulation of minority religious groups. Um, governments have had unprecedented powers and are collecting more data about citizens than ever before. So it could easily lead in the future to an escalation of uh, the kind of religious oppression that, for example, we're seeing of the Uyghur Muslim community in China. But I think even for more liberal, uh, open regimes, there are challenges that we've had for a long time that are now going to be intensified. So how do we balance freedom of religion, which often has implications for protecting more the rights of communities uh, in the face of the rights that are more attached to individuals? So the classic example that we've been dealing with for a while uh, are things like LGBT rights and the challenge that we've had in education. Uh, with regard to sex and relationships education, how do you balance the right of a religious community to bring up its young people, teaching their beliefs and their values, with the rights that individual citizens have to hear uh, the values of the country in which they live and, and, uh, and our social norms. So big challenges for governments, but big challenges as well for uh, faith communities and for religious leaders, as uh, they, or we, I include myself in that, think about um, what do we teach uh, with regard to civic responsibilities beyond our own religious community group, uh, a, a, an eye to the whole, to the wider community, and about the integration of faith with scientific discovery. And responses to both of those are going to be very influenced by what we think about this pandemic, about its meaning uh, and its kind of cause. Do we think that this is a sort of demonic force uh, from which the beliefs and rituals of our religious community are going to uh, protect us? Do we think of it as God's judgment on the, on the world outside of our religious community uh, in a way that kind of confirms an internal sense of righteousness and exacerbates those secular, post-secular tensions? Or uh, are we going to view it and more, I think, in line with what Pope Francis has been saying this week in the BBC series and on other occasions, that this is a moment of judgment that calls us to reflect uh, a, a judgment on our own lifestyles, on our own thinking, on how we treat animals and the natural world, for example, on how we look after people within our society who at the moment are particularly suffering, uh, the poor, uh, those without protections and the vulnerable. And then finally, how we give an account uh, of our own mortality, which has been brought very much to the fore for everybody in the midst of this crisis, as we've seen sort of daily death tolls and reflected on those questions of meaning within a society that had kind of neglected those. So lots of challenges for both governments and faith communities going forward.
Thank you very, very much, Jim, um, for, uh, for uh, your ideas, for your thoughts. Um, I would like now to uh, move to uh, Elizabeth Oldfield and invite her to uh, present uh, the findings of the report, but also her general thoughts about the, the topic. And I believe that you have a, a PowerPoint presentation. I do, and I can see that I'm also unmuted, so that's excellent. Hello. Um, I'm going to speak a little bit about a report that we launched yesterday. Uh, this is the slide from the launch last night called Religious London. And I think it's relevant because uh, London is a fan fantastic um, case study, really, of a post-secular global city. And what we found has really turned upside down some of the public perception of what religion is, at least in the UK. And London has this particularism and exceptionalism about it, as it turns out, with religion as well as many other things. Um, but first, I'm just going to say a little bit um, more generally about what I think one of the key policy areas that we need to pay attention to post-pandemic post will be. And this research was done over the last year with the quantitative research done in January, just ahead of the pandemic. And um, we did rerun some of the core questions during the lockdown and the data set was broadly unchanged. Um, so what I'll move on to is kind of hard data of where we were earlier this year. I do think we will see some changes, but as I talk about those now, just be aware they're a bit more speculative because they're not yet showing up in the data, or they, at least they weren't in April. Um, so the key thing really is about public services, and our work has really majored on lots of the different ways that faith communities are delivering public services very quietly, often out of sight. And we think that's been growing. Uh, we saw a spike really as austerity began to cut in the, uh, in the UK. Um, perhaps a more positive framing is that there was a brief window where the good society political rhetoric meant there was an upsurge in civil society more generally. And even before that, under the Blair government, um, quietly in the background, there was a huge, huge amount of movement to seeing faith communities as uh, really important partners in delivering social goods. And so people often underestimate just how much faith communities are doing. And lots of that has actually continued. We obviously don't have, uh, you know, really rigorous up-to-date data that we're collecting that at the moment. But what we can see is that uh, lots of the services have just gone online. So uh, there are many debt advice centres, for example, run by um, faith communities in the UK. Um, the more buildings-based things have obviously had to stop. So mother and toddler groups, kind of elderly befriending, lots of these very informal, very local-based things have had to stop. Um, because of the pandemic. But the real kind of point of need, sharp edge service delivery has increased dramatically. And the obvious example of that is around uh, food banks. The majority of food banks in the UK, although not all of them, are based around a faith community and the Trussell Trust who runs um, or partners with a huge number of those are reporting a 90% increase this April on demand compared to last year. And that is, a huge challenge, a huge pressure on these communities, um, often uh, outside London at least, for whom many of the congregations, um, if you're looking particularly at the Christian subset, are elderly, might be vulnerable themselves, um, and remarkably seeing how these services have been able to continue, um, but there has been a real cost to that. So uh, that was the, the situation before with uh, public service provision, that is what we think we are um, at right now. In terms of what we think the future might look like um, for the way faith communities engage in this, this is, I think there will be 
uh, without doubt, hugely increased need as we go into economic disruption um, and, you know, a state even less able to plug the gaps in the um, enormous way we've seen right in the heat at the moment. And with that, at least again outside London, you'll see reduced capacity. Again, you've got often aging populations and in congregation, and that goes for all civil society voluntary organisations as well, um, many of whom may be um, uh, more vulnerable and uh, there may just be less resource around, less people resource, less money resource. And that will be a huge uh, challenge for these faith communities who in their very DNA, it, it is there to serve their neighbours, to love their neighbours, to meet the needs that they see. And then this is the most speculative um, of my possible changes post-pandemic. I think you're going to see increased religious population of London. Um, and I'll say a little bit about that. Uh, and then I'll come on to the data for now and we'll help explain it a bit. So one of the things we're seeing at the moment, oh, forgive me, I'm uh, out of order with mine. Okay, I will uh, just explain that point before I move on, which is that I think it's quite likely that we're going to see um, uh, a flight from our cities and where we've had a kind of digital transformation where service sector jobs can be done remotely. Um, there's uh, a lot of anticipation of commuting going down, people working from home more. And it's likely that that will disproportionately be because of the way these sectors are skewed, um, white and middle class. And as our data will show, that is not where the center of gravity is for the um, religious population of London. And so my uh, very speculative, but I think solid proposal is that you might see um, a secular flight or the flight of the religious nuns from London, intensifying this effect that uh, London is a surprisingly religious and actually a surprisingly socially conservative city already. Um, so that's uh, my kind of future predictions. And I'll just whiz through the, uh, some of the most interesting findings of the report that's all available online. So religion in London is uh, younger and more diverse than it is in the rest of the country. Uh, this is just the Christian data set. The uh, Christians are the majority um, religious group in London still. And FP is frequency, frequently practicing. Uh, IP is infrequently practicing and MP is infrequently practicing. And they're a very interesting group because they're essentially nominally, nominally Christian and they diverge in their values really quite strongly from the frequently practicing. And so when we talk about Christians, uh, Christians in London, if you're not paying attention to attendance and practice as well as affiliation, you will get a very messy, noisy data set. When you pull those two things apart, you see um, something quite distinctive happening. Uh, so uh, as you'll see that uh, particularly the frequency pra frequently practicing group in London are um, much more likely to be Black, Asian, Asian and minority ethnic. They're also a lot younger, and uh, this top stat, I think, is particularly interesting. Half of London's 18 to 24-year-olds are frequent, frequently practicing in their religion. So if you're, um, well, 45%, if you're wandering around London and you see a young adult, you have a kind of one in two chance that they are actively um, religious. And so this idea that, particularly this British idea that religion is an old, white, rural, <laughs> Anglican, occupation just does not hold up in London. London is both the most religious and the least Anglican place in Great Britain. Just to be aware the GB set in here when we're comparing London to GB doesn't include Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland uh, complicates the picture. Um, and frequently practicing uh, 
believers in, in London are gender balanced, infrequently practicing are disproportionately female and not practicing at all are disproportionately male. And I won't go into a lot of the data here, but then the um, not practicing answer much more strongly questions like um, political correctness has gone too far, much more likely to say yes to that than frequency, frequently practicing Christians. There's a real divergence there. Um, civic engagement, religious groups in London are um, more civically engaged. That is you know, a trend that we see in another data set, but you can see here that the, the difference between um, MP, which is the not practicing Christian who do not pray, do not attend services, and the FP, which is the blue line, which is the frequently practicing is really significant. And often it goes MP, then religious none, and then frequency practicing. Those two groups, the not practicing and the frequency pra frequently practicing are the furthest apart on how they answer these questions. Um, the other is um, non-Christian religious minorities. One of the downsides of this data set, and we'd like to do more on it, is there's not much granularity to pull out these differences, but um, you can go and have a look at that if you'd like. Civic comfort, or I perhaps should say discomfort. Um, again, this is a real challenge around policy. You're seeing that, uh, and this is one where we do have the granularity, um, that for me, a surprising number of religious people in London reported feeling uh, that governments had passed legislation that made life difficult and had experienced feeling marginalized or threatened. And you can obviously see the very um, biggest group there is Muslim. And that there's a distant, there's a difference between how you feel about that depending on how much you practice. Again, it's all there. I won't go into it too much detail. I'll just finish by saying I think that um, pre-pandemic, we were still seeing the religious nuns as the fastest growing group, just. And so very slowly, you would have expected to see London getting less religious. It hasn't actually so far, but that's where the trajectory looked like it was going. Um, I think that we might see secular flight um, from the city. We will see religious groups wanting to step up and provide services. They may have much reduced capacity and all of those things are gonna complicate the picture for policymakers. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Lizzie, for uh, this fascinating snapshot of the post-secular uh, city, if we can call it that. I think we can. Um, now let me move to Aiza uh, um, um, Karam, uh, who, as I said earlier, will talk to us about the global role that religious groups have played and will play uh, going forward uh, in the pandemic. Um, first of all, thank you very much indeed for the opportunity to be with you today. I learned quite a bit already from the, the last two presentations. Um, and I think, one of my immediate knee-jerk reactions, if I may share, is to say, well, welcome to a reality that many of us had actually seen for quite some time, but may not necessarily have been a very uh, interesting reality for academics and policymakers whose comfort zone had been to see the religious realms of life as pretty much the marginal ones. Um, and I don't know whether that was a reflection of the reality or whether it was pretty much a reflection of a particular worldview. But let's just leave that aside for a second. Um, allow me to share with you what do, I'm supposed to be trying to give a little bit of an idea about the global perspective and specifically the roles played by religious actors in the global response to COVID. Um, let me be clear about what I mean by the religious actors. There's such 
a massive realm. We are talking about religious institutions like churches, mosques, synagogues, temples, etc. A very big space, in addition to religious leaders, many of whom may well represent and formally represent and be affiliated to particular religious institutions, but many who don't, who are uh, clergy or lay people, but they, they are learned in their own spaces. And we're also referring to a civic NGO, non-governmental organizational space, where many are actually faith-based or faith-inspired. And over the years, we've lost sight of the fact that, for instance, um, Caritas is a, a Catholic NGO. It's inspired by Catholic values. They're one of the biggest humanitarian and developmental actors in the NGO world, but it's only petering relatively recently down that this is a religious identity that they hold and maintain, and the same applies to World Vision and others, some of the biggest. Um, but we're also talking about community level groups and entities who may not be legally registered as, uh, as a non-governmental non organization, but are very much active and inspired by their faith and serving in their different capacities, their respective communities. So effectively, religious actors includes all of that. And, and when, you, when you think about it, that's a, that's a really large group. That's like the, big, the bigger canvas of, of life as we know it. So it's impossible to speak about all of this, but what I will try to do is to focus on the religiously inspired uh, non-governmental organizations who are um, either present in national spaces um, only or actually are also international actors. Um, and I think already uh, Elizabeth has highlighted how there's a history of religious organizations like this um, working and serving in the, social, in the social sectors. In fact, what those of us who've been working on religion for the last 30 years have systematically said is this, the oldest development actors, the oldest humanitarian actors are actually religious institutions and religious non-governmental actors. It's the, the, the government itself, government as we know it itself, is a relatively new, uh, the newbies uh, on this particular block. But in fact, those who have been providing health, education, sanitation, nutrition, services to populations have actually traditionally been the religious institutions and continue to be. Um, so we know it is a very rough figure where everybody decides to contest and we will continue to contest until we die. But we're, in, we're looking at health and basic health service provision. We know that at least as far as Sub-Saharan Africa is concerned, a minimum of 30% of basic health services are actually being provided through faith-based organizations. And this is only taking into account the Christian organizations. It hasn't yet, the figure doesn't yet include the Hindu, the Muslim, and the others. So frankly, the oldest social service providers anyway are. Now, in the World Humanitarian Summit um, in 2016, um, big commitments made by the largest global non-governmental organizations who are the largest humanitarian actors, um, NGOs in this space. And there's a, the top 10 commitments that are being projected and made by these organizations, commitments to what they are doing already and what they're preparing to ramp up because the anticipation of humanitarian disasters then in 2016 was that we are only on the increase. We will be facing more and more humanitarian disasters of which COVID is but one. Um, so then the anticipation is more and they're largest global humanitarian NGOs are projecting their commitments that they're making to this work and what based on what they're already providing. Out of the top 10, four of the largest are faith-based non-governmental organizations. And it takes a wee while to peter down to the understanding of those looking 
on this massive wall to assess how the relative NGOs are doing and their commitments takes a wee while to register that four of those are actually faith-based. Oh, really, is World Vision a faith-based NGO? Uh, we thought it was what, you know, big, large humanitarian. Oh, Caritas is Catholic. Oh, I see. Um, these organizations have served in the millions for many, many years. But in order to be able to serve and coexist and partner with so much of the secular establishments around the world, it actually, they didn't highlight their religious identity that much. And this has now changed dramatically over the last 20 years, I would say, where it's, it's um, kosher slash halal to be a religious NGO. And there is, if you will, a retrieval of that religious missionary identity happening amongst these organizations. This is all, by the way, taking place in an environment pre-COVID where we were already complaining about a shrinking civic space, which hasn't gone away with COVID. It's actually become a bit more uh, stark to see. Now, fascinating to see how it is that the religious NGOs had to deal as civil society organizations in this shrinking civic space. And it wasn't a very easy existence as it wasn't for many of the other secular NGOs. But I think that shrinking civic space needs to stay with us a little bit as we look at COVID and the, the, what's happening with the COVID dynamics, but realize that we're already talking about many non-governmental organizations, including the religious ones who are suffering a, 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 a the struggles of being legitimate providers needed, but not always being able to uh, deliver the services, especially not in humanitarian contexts, especially not in conflict situations, because then other issues and tensions come into account. This is all the background that we're seeing. We mustn't forget also as part of that background where religious NGOs are active is the increasing concern about um, religious extremism that seems to have been directed towards a particular religion, um, in this case, Islam, where to, to be working in, a, in an Islamically um, affiliated or a justified NGO, even if you were doing very, very critical humanitarian work, um, the fact that you have this Islamic character pro provided plenty of impediments vis-a-vis um, -vis being able to operate because you were seen as potentially problematic in some way, shape or form. And some of our, um, of the Muslim colleagues would say, in these NGOs would say, I think the presumption is you're guilty until proven innocent. Um, so this is part, again, of the dynamic of existing. And therefore, with the Muslim NGOs relatively hampered in some of these spaces, including the humanitarian spaces, more leeway, more capacity, more possibility, uh, afforded to the Christian NGOs in these humanitarian spaces, which ultimately means that if you're looking at it from the 30,000 feet, you'll notice a great deal more of the Christian NGOs and their engagement and activism than you tend to see the Muslim NGOs. So that's part of also the worldview that we then acquire of what is it that the religious NGO world actually looks like and who's who in that space. And the dominant is the Christian character uh, and presence. So all of this was taking place before COVID, including some very critical aspects of social inequities that were also leading to the politics of othering, where even between the increasing sectarianism in many communities, the increasing evangelization in many communities was the, the, the normal for many of these uh, religious actors and particularly the religious NGOs. So what happened after the COVID hit? Well, we realized a very interesting thing. 20 years ago, with any major disaster, the, the 
international community, so to speak. Let's think of it in terms of the United Nations or the European Union um, or the African Union or others wouldn't necessarily have looked towards religion. You, you'll all remember in your context in the United Kingdom, but also in the United Nations, this was very dominant only 15 years ago. We didn't do religion, so we didn't really look at religion. We did, don't do was a very common uh, frame. Right now, nobody dares say that. No matter where they are, everybody is actually, quote unquote, doing religion. They're looking to see what the religious spaces are like. They're even looking to partner and to work and to engage. So the rate of partner, the rate of interest from the secular multilateral spaces in the religious spaces has increased dramatically. COVID has actually accentuated that increase because, remember, it comes a little bit on the back to some extent of the Ebola crisis, when the religious actors and religious leaders in particular had a very important role to play in being invited to uh, change the mannerisms of uh, burial practices in those three affected countries so that so that would minimize, and that indeed proved to be a tipping point for the, for the dissemination of the infections. So there's already the, the work of the religious communities on the HIV and AIDS, which is a le legacy of engaging in public health by religious actors and actively contributing to destigmatization of HIV positive uh, survivors. But then comes Ebola and the knowledge that these religious leaders have a hugely critical role in changing minds and attitudes. Now we have a global pandemic called COVID. Where are these religious actors? How can we work with them? How can we support them? So very interesting to see now that everybody does religion, basically, to put it very uh, bluntly. Um, but we've also seen what, what Elizabeth uh, has already highlighted. And it's not just in London. We know that in Geneva, Caritas has been uh, feeding thousands. Now, Geneva is the capital of Switzerland. Nobody usually thinks of it as a very religious space. Um, but we know that there have been religious entities who have been providing for the, the thousands who haven't been able to access the services. So if this is happening in the, the secular hemisphere, which is supposed to be, um, you know, the Western hemisphere, which is supposed to be secular, you can well imagine you can well imagine how much more of that social service provision is in, in much need in other contexts where uh, even the, the, the social, the, so the level of social economic capabilities is much less and the ability of governments to serve their people is already seriously hampered. So we're talking about contexts where the multilateral landscapes are now doing religion, much more interested in reaching out, partnering, etc. Um, not necessarily with all religious groups and organizations. Remember I said that there's a dominant character, that what you see first is usually the Christian uh, spaces before you start seeing the others or even knowing where to identify them. So, but we also see that even in Central Park in New York City, um, Samaritans first set up in the very first months of the, when New York was the epicenter, they had to set up in Central Park in New York City, a massive tent to, to accommodate the overflow from the hospitals. So surprise, surprise for the Western imagination, the entry of the religious spaces, the visibility of the entry of religious social sector and social services spaces is so much, it's undeniable. You can't, you can't not see uh, Central Park in New York City. You can't not see Caritas serving in Geneva, Switzerland. So the interesting thing here is that there's an assumption that this is something that's newly happening. Not necessarily newly happening, but it's much more visible because of the numbers, um, as Elizabeth was also telling us. But my, my counter here is it's not just London, and it's not just Geneva, and it's not just New York. This is, a, this is an increasing visual of what's been the case 
for the longest amount of time. In 2012, I believe there was an article in The Economist where they did a research that showed that 70% of hospitals in the United States are run by or through the Catholic Church. That's in the United States of America, 70% of hospitals. We have a reality we didn't see for a long time that COVID is forcing us to see very, very much. But we also have a very interesting dynamic. Now, naive people like myself, I take full credit for that naivete, assumed that when COVID struck and all of these first responders who are religious actors and religious NGOs assumed that we would work better together. What I've noticed invariably um, irrevocably, is that every religious NGO is doing its own thing. They're working massively. They're serving at full speed. They're fast forwarding their social services to everyone, but they're all working individually. Very, very, very few, if any, are actually working together to serve the same communities. Now, isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that we have the faith inspiration, but we're not necessarily all working together? And it seems that the paradigm is me, my faith, my organization, we have to deliver now. So collaboration is not the name of the game right now. Um, it's, it's rare, it's happening, but it's much, much rarer in this space. We also know, and we can see in, in spaces uh, where, as, as James was mentioning, in more dictatorial contexts or more authoritarian contexts, we have a threatened uh, state where, um, where the, the repression of the religious was the norm, is the norm. And what is happening now, where in some cases, uh, some of the uh, state provision is, to, is forced to rely on this religious sector, but at the same time is also using the opportunity of having to uh, do the lockdown. So we have malls opening um, in some parts of the world being allowed to open, but not mosques. Interesting that. Now it's changing slowly, but there was this period of at least a month where it was okay to go to a mall, but you couldn't yet go to the mosque um, it, because of the government regulation. So an interesting nuance in terms of how some governments who are not feeling at their most comfortable in terms of democratic legitimacy, to put it very politely, are, are looking at this space and how they're, they're working in it. Um, I, have, I have much more to say, but I just wanted to say there are two interesting features uh, in this dynamic. Um, when Religions for Peace, my organization, in order to encourage the multi-religious collaboration, because, because of the belief that if we can work together now in the midst of this crisis, if we can work together to serve together, to deliver together, the level of trust of our collaboration increases. Whereas if we work in our respective silos, post a COVID dynamic, God willing, we haven't actually used an opportunity that was given to us to, to, to to build our trust, to build our collaborative normal, to make the normal the collaborative, we would have missed out on that opportunity. So we created a multi-religious humanitarian fund to encourage uh, the religious NGOs to work more together or to work together at all. And to my surprise, I realized that the larger international faith-based organizations, not only are they not interested, they're downright annoyed that there is this thing. They want to create, they have created their own funds for this humanitarian space. They're not particularly interested or happy to see that there's this idea that we might want to actually contribute together to work together better. So, so that, that individualism, if you will, in the religious NGO sector is a bit concerning um, as, it, as we go forward. But it's interesting also to see that when we reviewed the applications, we had about 100 applicants from all over the world, we, we found that many of them assumed that multi-religious meant ecumenical. 
So the understanding between the religious world that actually multi-religious means you need to work Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, Buddhist. No, it's well, we've got this church and that church and this, this Christian community and that Christian community. We're actually working uh, multi-religiously. And so there's, there's, a, there's a, that's an interesting feature. Is it multi-religious or is it ecumenical? Again, the, the worldview of the, the dominant uh, narrative within the, the faith-based world is that it's a Christian NGO space, largely dominated by Christian NGOs. So if you're going to work together as Christian NGOs, that's multi-religious, isn't it? Um, no, it's not. Um, and then having to, to work through that within our own uh, worldview as religious NGOs would be rather interesting and important, I think. And, and it helps define, it helps us question what the post-COVID is going to look like. Are we still going to see the dominant Christian uh, NGO paradigm? I think yes. Um, and, and what, what will that imply for our reimagined um, futures, if at all possible? Um, I wanted to endorse the, the, the finding of both, that both James and Elizabeth have mentioned that there's an increased level of religious participation online. Um, there's, during Ramadan, many of the, of the Muslim NGOs reported an increase in the donations that they were receiving as opposed to a diminishing. There's actually been an increase compared to the last few years. So yes, not only is it an increase in giving in some religious spaces, but there has been very much an increase in spiking in the level of religious observance that's virtual. Now, to me, that means that we have to think of a post um, COVID religiosity that is a re the reimagining, re sorry, reimagining ritual, religious rituals as we know them, because standing to, to pray together or being on the same pew in a church is now changing. Um, what will it look like? What will religious observance and ritual observance in many religious traditions now look like? Um, it's going to be different in character for sure it'll be more virtual in character for sure um, but we are also talking about an affirmation of what elizabeth said it's that the the communities of faithful are actually younger in age so we we are looking at a much more youthful religious generation um, that is now interacting very powerfully virtually as well and to me that's a very hopeful sign um, because it is a regeneration of ideas and and belief and praxis, all simultaneously. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Aza. Um, let me uh, now uh, turn to the audience. Um, I have a few questions myself, and uh, I can perhaps interject them as we go on with the discussion, but I want to give the opportunity to our audience to feel questions. And um, I have a first question from uh, uh, Rocio Ferro Adams, who is um, with Research Capacity Limited and a former civil servant. Um, he's asking whether uh, we know what voluntary help Christian churches have provided during the pandemic. Presumably this is about the UK, but uh, I may be wrong here. It could be a sort of broader uh, question. Um, he says that traditionally nuns and priests have always provided not just spiritual support, uh, but also uh, coordination and humanitarian relief support. And um, is there any possibility of religious solidarity to offer uh, coordinated uh, help as we see uh, at the global institutional solidarity level? So this is the first question. I, I can perhaps ask um, Elizabeth to, to respond to it and uh, perhaps um, um, uh, Jim or uh, Azak can come in later. Hi, thank you. Um, 
Yes, as I said, I think there has been a huge amount of activity going. Perhaps the first thing to say that it's obviously not just religious groups that are doing this. I think one of the really encouraging things around the UK, at least, has been to see this um, blossoming of mutual aid groups um, in local communities uh, led by all kinds of people. Um, so it's really important as religious people, we don't kind of stick a flag in kindness and claim it. Um, but there is a, there's a history and a heritage and an institutional story and a heft um, which alongside repeated teachings, um, the data shows always makes it more likely that um, a religious person is going to be civically engaged and that religious communities in the main, some are very closed, but in the main um, will be serving their neighbours. So particularly in the pandemic, as I said, you've seen this um, huge spike in food banks, which are um, uh, largely based in churches, although not always. There's also been a pivoting uh, to uh, faith communities working with the NHS to deliver food provision that's not that's not for people who can't afford food, although that's gone up massively and the food banks are addressing that, but those who are shielding and therefore are having problem accessing food. So, you know, there's churches in West London who have been given a list of the people in their area that are shielding and they are calling them and checking in on them and then de delivering food parcels. And elsewhere, the, 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 the main partner is a mosque or if it's a heavily Jewish um, community, it's a synagogue. So, um, I think, that, I think the thing that shows up in this time more than ever and has always shown up in our research is that religious communities have an ability to both mobilize and coordinate volunteers um, in a way that is, is hard to replicate in a crisis. It happened around the Grenfell Tower fire tragedy in the UK. It was the faith communities at the base of the tower that were able to be responsive. They were networked, they were linked in a way that um, state responses were sadly incredibly lacking. Um, and you've seen it now in the UK with the NHS volunteer scheme. There was, it's, it's very easy in a, and to have a kind of peak of um, civic feeling and there to be lots of people, you know, wonderfully sticking their hand up saying, I want to volunteer for the NHS. But if you haven't got in place networks of people who know each other and existing institutions, you can't deploy them. And so that NHS volunteer scheme actually sort of fell by the wayside. Um, so, I mean, I could point you to lots of research about the things that have been happening for years and are continuing to happen in the pandemic, but I won't go into details. But in response to your question, yes, lots is happening and it's because the work was done previously. You know, again, not too rosy tinted, some, some faith which is just in survival mode. You know, they're as knocked by this whole thing by, as everyone else. They've got people dying. It's not like everyone's a good Samaritan rolling up their sleeves and digging in. It's more complicated than that, but the, the headline is that there is an enormous amount of of neighbour love, embodied neighbour love happening. Sorry about that. Would Jim or Azza want to come in or we have other questions? Um, yeah, if I can just speak yes. to the second half of, of that question, which was about mm. for kind of cooperation, because as also mentioned it in terms of there's lots of good work going on, but people are kind of ploughing their own furrow and collaboration, uh, you know, is more difficult. What I think I'm seeing is that where established interfaith relationships and networks uh, exist, people have been able to mobilize them. So I mentioned Bradford earlier uh, in, a, in a negative sense of, of, of that legal challenge from one mosque, but we've also seen in Bradford, which is a city where there's very strong Christian Muslim relationships, uh, cooperation over supporting people who are isolating, people who are vulnerable and so forth. And, you know, I mean, uh, without embarrassing her, the work that Azza does represents 
uh, at a much kind of more global level, the, the, the networks that have been established, which we can now mobilize. Now, a big uh, element of this pandemic, which we've touched on a bit, and I'm sure will come out more in the questions, is the way in which um, a kind of sort of migration online, an increased expression of faith groups online, is I think gonna have the effect over time of eroding uh, existing religious sort of patterns and institutions, the form that religious takes, religion takes. And that is going to pose challenges for sort of the future of interfaith cooperation and interfaith um, dialogue more broadly, because it's gonna be a much more fluid scene. And so I think there's, and, and, and as I say, perhaps we'll discuss this more with future questions, there's a lot of opportunity in the move online, but I do also have concerns mm -hmm. that it's gonna make those kind of relationships much more difficult. Um, it is actually the case of the next uh, question by Andy Pakula, Minister of New Unity, which is a non-religious church in London, is about the um, online gatherings. But it's a broader question that he's asking whether what we are seeing is more a need for community as opposed to um, a, a religious community. This is the, the way I understand the question. Is it more about being together rather than belief per se? Is this the phenomenon we are witnessing um, at the moment? Uh, he also has a second uh, question. Uh, I think it's quite separate, which is, are there any examples of ways that faith groups have been instrumental in changing and shaping government policy and practice, particularly for disadvantaged groups who have been damaged by lockdown? So maybe a, a question for, for any of the three of you who wants to take it. Do we have specific examples where there's a, there's a, a sort of a remit that uh, uh, religious faith groups have been taking on to themselves of pursuing? in relation to, to government policy. So the first question is about com the, the need for community as opposed to belief. And the second is about uh, government policy. So maybe I can ask um, Asa to respond to that and perhaps, uh, well, all three of you, I think, sure. come in if, 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 if Thank you. Thank you, Katerina. And thank you for the question. I think that, or the questions, I think there's, I think what COVID has done is it has increased the sense of fear and the lockdown has increased the sense of isolation and marginalization. So for those who are approaching the religious praxis today with and from the perspective of that particular isolation and marginalization imposed by COVID, then yes, I think that the urge for community is even higher as opposed to here's what this belief system stipulates, but I, you know, I come from this community, I'm going to try to seek now that community. But to be honest with you, I think as a, as a believer myself, I think the sense of community is always very much part of the belief. Um, we, we, we enjoy our uh, Ramadan rituals because they bring us together it, more than any other time of the year. Uh, Easter, similar uh, in so many religions. The same idea is, to be honest, it's the belief and the community have always been part and parcel of one another. Um, so 
what I think you're, you are indeed noticing now is, is the result of what the added level of marginalization from the lockdown has resulted in. But I don't think you can really dissect them that clearly, to be honest. Um, in terms of actual examples where religious groups have been able to impact on government policy, I would take you all the way back to the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa and elsewhere in the world where the religious organizations have been very vocal advocates and religious leaders have been amongst the most vocal advocates uh, against the a policy of apartheid. Um, we all remember Bishop Tutu and, and, and think of him very fondly until today because there is this notion that he his role as an advocate for justice um, remains extraordinarily powerful. Um, and, it, and it did result in a mobilization across the sectors that re resulted in change. I, I, would, I don't need to go far to think of the civil rights movement here in the United States of America and Martin Luther King and a whole range and, and, and Rabbi Herschel and a whole range of religious actors whose, whose very involvement in the civic space was not limited to religion, but they came into it as advocates for their faith tradition, Mahatma Gandhi. They came inspired by their faith. They are faith leaders. Their engagement in the civil space and the national uh, conversation and the government policy is profound until today and remains so until today. More minor, sorry, minor, micro-level examples in terms of what happens on issues related to, to gender, to um, the criminalization of certain, uh, the behavior of certain um, uh, of, of uh, men having sex with men, the criminalization of this behavior in some countries uh, of old and still in some uh, spots of the world today, led, led, advocated for by certain religious leaders. So it's not all rosy and good. There's also some very tense and, and difficult issues. Again, to go back to the example in the United States, I think you see plenty of examples mm -hmm. where religious actors have had a very powerful influence on policy. Thank you. Um Maybe if I could ask Elizabeth or, or Jim to come in, uh, maybe specifically with regards to the current situation, I'm not sure if the, um, uh, our, our friend uh, was asking about the UK, but again, perhaps with the COVID-19 lockdown, if we have seen an impact uh, through religious faith groups uh, lobbying government for particular uh, actions. Go ahead, Jim. I mean, I, I just wanted to say a little bit more about the, the, the relationship between kind of the move online and uh, need for community. I think that's one element of the kind of religious interest that's there, but actually community is, is a sort of neglected aspect of um, how, how, how Western people tend to think about religion. There's always a, the, the, the need for community. And uh, I think it, it's got a lot to do with the kind of fear that Azza was about and the desire for meaning as I said our, our kind of way of life has suddenly been interrupted and it, it poses a lot of questions for us and I actually think that the kinds of religiosity that are most easily promoted on my uh, online are perhaps not so much about community but the forms of religion that are uh, the very kind of belief focused uh, which tends to be a sort of particularly western Protestant perspective on, on what religion is and other forms of religion which are much more about ritual, symbolic system, community and so forth, I think they're really going to very much, you know, and already are seeing the limitations of online community. Catholic Church in this country is very keen to get back into church uh, mm -hmm. and able to, uh, to, to, to resume celebrating the Mass. Um, so so it, I, I don't think the future of community in that sense um, is online. 
In terms of the, 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 the influencing a government policy, of course, we've seen the House of Lords resume online with Zoom, and uh, we have um, members of the Church of England, uh, bishops of the Church of England, who've been in there. And I think what I've been encouraged is to uh, push government to think about how the lockdown really holds the most disadvantaged communities uh, at, at the forefront of their minds. I mean, who is suffering most uh, through not being at school? It's it's the kids who aren't getting the same kind of support at home that, that middle class families get. And I've, I've heard those kind of considerations raised, for example. Yes, I would um, second that. There's a strong history of, um, uh, of bishops in the Lords, which, you know, is complicated, uh, political theology wise, but it's where we are with our quirky British constitution. And there've been um, several examples over the years of them um, uh, rebelling against government policy, for example, around issues of child poverty. Um, since, since the pandemic began, I can't immediately think of examples of success. I can think of large numbers of examples of speaking out. And it's usually where you see faith-based um, faith charities joining coalitions, which is I think really laudable and the most effective thing. And um, for example, around holiday hunger, as it turns out, if a very eloquent footballer gets on board, um, that's the way to tip that over the line. But you saw, you know, churches who are who have been providing um, meals through the holidays, you know, across the country for years, um, partnering with the NSPCC and other ch child poverty-based charities to come together and say to government, "This is a, this is um, this is a bad decision," uh, which then was reversed, but not directly through them. So yes, lots of lots of advocating for justice, not that much direct success in this current crisis. Okay, we have a similar question, but I think it's um, leading uh, perhaps somewhere else as well by uh, Nalini Sivathasan, who's uh, at the BBC Asian Network, um, who's asking whether the physical sites of worship have become or will become redundant. I think you, you, you answered to, to an extent um, uh, this question, both of you, especially Jim. And um, maybe I want to perhaps add a, a different aspect of this from my perspective as an academic. Uh, I, I have experienced very much um, the loss of the physical community at the university uh, with the pandemic. I, I'm very grateful for uh, the online uh, opportunity to come together with my students and with my colleagues. But actually nothing I found replaces, um, as I call it, the warm body contact uh, of being with people, talking with them in the flesh, interacting in a group, feeling the group dynamic in a way that perhaps cannot be replicated um, uh, online. So, um, um, I mean, this is not about a faith community, but I think it adds an element to how we think about community in, in, in the context of religion uh, more generally. So let me move on to um, a couple of uh, questions about uh, India. The first is uh, by uh, Anum Siddiq, who is in India, and uh, they are asking about the recent wave of strict governance structure and increased state role under the guise of COVID steps. Uh, the reference here is especially in India where extremists have blamed Muslims for the spread of coronavirus and the Indian government following uh, an appeasement policy of those claims. There is a second question, as I said, on India by Sanghamitra Sarkhan, visitor to the LSE, 
again from India, how will secular politics and conservative religion-based uh, politics play their roles in India in the post-COVID-19 uh, period? So I know that uh, uh, the three of you, perhaps with the exception of Azhar, who, who's perhaps working with people there, um, are not necessarily specialized in India, but we can perhaps broaden uh, these questions, because I think they apply in some guise and form to other contexts, not just the uh, Indian context. So um, I leave it to you to decide who wants to take uh, any of the three questions, any of the two questions. Okay. I'm sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Religions for peace work in, in India, but and, and I'm certainly not an India specialist, but we do know that the Indian subcontinent has been a place where the tensions between faiths has been escalating for some time, and that's linked to um, the, the development in religious identity, which has linked it, both in India and Pakistan, more closely to the identity of the nation state than was previously been the case. And that is one of the things that I think the online migration, the sense of religion not being expressed so much in locality, but more constructed at this global level because that is kind of the drift that you have uh, with with this online observance it's people are going to be exposed to those narratives those global religious narratives that are often defining themselves in hostility to other faith groups so I think that is a major concern uh, going forward uh, that we'll see an escalation of those tensions supported by certain state policies um, and also I think there's an element of all of this um, that it it, 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 if you look through history at times of crisis like this, um, there are forms of scapegoating that take place. I mean, go right back to the Black Death and it unleashed the worst uh, anti-Semitism on our continent of Europe uh, that, you know, uh, that we'd seen and was unprecedented until the Holocaust. So there's a kind of blaming. We've talked about that in relation to, oh, well, the Muslim community is going to spread it because of their observance of Ramadan. And, you know, we're seeing that in a number of areas. And I think it's going to put a strain on interfaith relations in many parts of the world and India, certainly. Also? Um, I would say that um, if you look globally at what's been happening, the, the interreligious collaboration is, is actually not very good. It's, as I said in my presentation, I'm seriously worried about that. Now, um, James had some ideas about what's going on in Bradford, but I'm, I'm really sorry to say that that is not the norm uh, globally and most definitely not where it's more than one religion or two religions who happen to coexist. And I think India is an example where we see actually two things happening simultaneously and they're completely in opposition to one another. One is the religious groups are actually coming together more to try to advocate together more powerfully to increase their voice within their own communities especially now that they can only connect and relate to or during the last couple of months they could only connect and relate virtually anyway so there was a there was an amp there was an increase in virtual multi-religious or inter-religious work and, and and events and discussions and whatever um but the other extreme is also happening which is the me myself and i uh, tendency that I referred to. It's me, my organization, and my community, and everybody else can, quite frankly, uh, whatever. So I think we, we're seeing the two trends happen. Humanitarian disasters, disasters in general, um, tough situations like what we're all facing tend to accentuate the good as they accentuate the not so good. That's just what we've always seen. So to the, I, I claimed naivete earlier. I still claim it because I had assumed that the good 
the forces for good, the coming together with Trump, but in, excuse the expression, but in fact, what we're actually seeing is both, both phenomenon increasing. The, the anti, the, 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 the sectarianism within communities is increasing, as is actually the collaboration efforts and attempts. Now, it depends on where we want to look, but I would urge us not to see one more than the other because they're both increasing simultaneously. Um, and that's just the truth. Elizabeth, would you like to come in? I don't think I've got anything to add on that. Okay, all right. So maybe I can move on to um, the next question, which is by Chester, an alumnus of LSE Department of International Relations. Um, he asks, the speakers all talk about religious communities and actors responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, but I haven't heard something about how the very person, the actual member, of these faith communities responds to the pandemic. How do you think one's personal faith influences them and, and shapes that response and then going forward post pandemic? How does one's faith, beliefs, tradition make a difference in dealing with a pandemic as compared to those who do not believe in any religious tradition? And maybe I can add a little twist to that question. Do we see, um, people uh, for the first time turning to religion, I mean, from what you can glean, perhaps Elizabeth, you would know more about this. Do we have a, do we have a, a drift or a movement in that direction? Or uh, as Chester is asking, do we have a kind of strengthening of, of, of those uh, already existing feelings and beliefs? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, we don't yet have uh, sort of rigorous and reliable data for it, but anecdotally, certainly within the church, uh, you know, we're seeing huge numbers sign up for online alpha courses, for example. Um, the, uh, there was a piece of polling that said uh, Christians were having many more conversations about faith. You would sort of expect to see this sort of existential unsettling to lead to people doing some spiritual reflection, that there is, is a moment of profound moral seriousness. It brings our mortality to us. It brings our sense of you know, the, the things that we're normally so distracted by because we're just trying to work and live and eat and get through the day uh, are no longer avoidable. And so I think people will come out of this time having clarified what they believe and why. In what direction that will go for individuals, obviously, I don't know. Uh, what we're seeing, and we're doing a little bit of research about the kind of existential effects, we are seeing a small uptick in people seeking out sources of wisdom. Um, for some, that's philosophy. For some, that's yoga. For some, that's... Um, the Bible. Um, and I think that there is probably going to be a trend towards the more contemplative and the more mystical um, religious practices, not least because that's the sort of classically solitary part of in individual religions and there is more solitude happening. Um, and that I think when you're dealing with the anxiety and the destabilization of this kind of crisis, then that inward turn to God, to the divine, um, is a really normal um, instinct that lots of people will be following. I think it, at their best, religions give us, uh, we're part of a story, there's a kind of trajectory of history, there is a way of understanding what death is, there is a way of understanding what suffering is. It, it's all, for all these reasons that there is great comfort and 
you know, it has a positive impact on, on mental and emotional well-being because it does create these structures and these communities of meaning. So I would be very surprised if people aren't leaning into them and finding succor there. Yes, I mean, similarly, I think um, I don't like to generalise about the experience that people have had through lockdown. Some people have had kind of crazy homes with children to look after and, and jobs to keep up with and all the rest of it. But I think a lot of people have had an experience of their life slowing down suddenly, uh, an experience of their own company and, and, and solitude. And um, everything that uh, Elizabeth has just said speaks into that. Um, one of the things I think it's sort of exposed within faith communities is that kind of across most of the world religions, for various reasons, over, over quite a period of time, there has been a bit of a waning of the mystical tradition. Uh, and most mainstream believers within um, uh, uh, the world religions aren't as familiar with the mystical voices in their traditions um, as, as one might expect. And I hope um, there's, th there'll be some recovery of that because we, we tend to see uh, mysticism as a kind of counterbalance towards more sectarian, uh, aggressive kind of forms of religion. And you know, that would be a very welcome development. So let me move on to a couple of um, different questions. One of, one of them is, is quite interesting, uh, original question by Elizabeth uh, Botsford, who asks, is the NHS clap for carers a religious exercise? Um, do you have uh, any reflections on that? And, and for those who are not in the UK, this is the, the weekly sort of coming together with people leaving their doorsteps essentially and um and clapping to thank the nhs um, and also now i think uh recently social social workers as well social carers as well for all they've done for uh, for all of us uh, during that pandemic is this a religious um experience i've actually i've just written a long article on this yeah. Okay, I was going to ask the second question, but we let, go ahead. Sorry, no, 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 go ahead because the other one is quite different too. So, yeah. So uh, I have a podcast called The Sacred, and I ask people about what they think is sacred in society now, which isn't always religious. And uh, the idea was popularized by Emil Durkheim, um, math sociologist, and he talks about it as moments of collective transcendence or. Um, uh, collective effervescence. There's this sense in which we kind of circle around, we gather around the things that are sacred in a society, and you will always expect to see rituals there. And so I think the clap for care is, it, the NHS as a whole actually in the UK is certainly having a moment as being seen as a sacred value that we all have a stake in, that we all want to protect, and we want to create rituals around. So whether that's exactly the same thing as religious, I don't know, but I certainly think that we're seeing a kind of sacred NHS moment. Jim? I agree with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Asa? No? Okay. So let me move on to um, a question by Jenny. She asks, how to oppose um, a decision of a government or a state that contradicts religious concepts? This is, this is a very interesting one. It speaks to... Uh, conflict uh, that is brought up by by religion i think in in this context and we've seen this in various 
uh, contexts in various countries in different ways. So what does one do when there is a directive or, or a law that goes right against uh, their own uh, religious belief? Perhaps I'll jump in, but I mean, I think we need to see the promotion of freedom of religion within most countries in the world in various, uh, to various degrees and uh, for various constituencies. Um, in some cases, that is a, um, uh, a, a deliberate authoritarian suppression uh, where I think some international support and alliances are quite important in hopefully trying to kind of um, make some progress on that. I think um, uh, in more open liberal democracies, as I said, I think often these are kind of genuine tensions, uh, how you balance often sort of competing rights. Um, but freedom of religion is, I think, not as well understood as it should be, and therefore its violations are often not conscious, but unconscious. And I think just listening to the findings of uh, the Theos report that um, Elizabeth was outlining, I mean, clearly for better or worse, we have a very high proportion of people with socially conservative views in London, socially conservative views, for example, um, about same-sex relationships. And so when, um, you know, a few years ago, the, um, one of the indicators of kind of potential radicalization among young people in schools was that they express opposition to same-sex marriage. We have to realize that that is including a very large section of the religious population. And perhaps that's something that needs to be engaged with in a less hostile way uh, than, than to kind of, you know, potentially kind of criminalize the view. So I think there's a lot of learning uh, that, that, that governments need to go through. And I think it's important that within uh, kind of more liberal countries, religious communities don't get into a defensive mindset, but that they work with those governments to better understand their worldview. Aza? Forgive me, Katerina. I actually missed that last question, um, so I, I won't comment on it, if you don't mind, unless you want to repeat it uh, or reformulate it. I'm so sorry. It, it, is, it is simply a, well, simply, it's a simple question, but not a, an easy to answer. Um, it's about the contradiction between um, a, a government directive, let's say, which... which I goes against your beliefs um, and uh, what do you do? Uh, and, uh, and I see the question, I read the question as, as, a, as, a, uh, as an, a moral one, but also a practical one. How do you handle the, these, these contradictions, these clashes? Well, I think, I think that that's a, a, a perpetual problem for a lot of believers, particularly in countries where governments are, um, shall we say, not as democratically well positioned as elsewhere i'm trying to be very diplomatic and politically correct here but i think you see in authoritarian regimes that there are definite concerns from many believers about how governments are approaching the religious space and religious issues i think what this the specific situation of COVID should be seen as it's not just a general the government has a very odd position with respect to religion or maybe advocating for something that is against religion it's actually not that straightforward or that that clear. In many cases, the advocacy from the governments was, 
don't go to your places of worship because uh, scientifically speaking, the disease can be spread much more if you do so. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a, a political position in any way, shape or form. It was just saying, you know what, for your own interest, just don't go to the schools, don't go to the mosques and don't do etc. Um, now, this brought up the question that is being raised here, which is, so what happens when you find that, you know, your religion is demanding that you have to go to the mosque for this uh, Friday prayer, but you're, not, you're now not allowed to go because the government is telling you not to go. But in this case, the government is telling you not to go for a very specific purpose. This is not a general policy that we then have to look at in terms of the broader government or state relationships with religion and civil society. I think we need to be very clear on what context we're asking this particular question, because it's not a generic question that everybody's going to be able to answer and, and take a position on. In this case, it was a scientific need to, to please not go because it will spread. And if there's a way of being safe about it, then by all means. But we do have situations where certain governments manipulate religious institutions, religious discourse, and religious practices for their own particular political ends. That is way beyond freedom of relief issues. That is, that is quite frankly, uh, a relationship that is, that is politically inspired between religion and the, the religious and the political spaces, which goes back centuries. Um, and, and religion, freedom of religion and belief is something that we're, we're, we're focusing on now. It, it's, it's that plus, 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 quite frankly, it's about democracy, governance and legitimacy in the first place. So those are many, many different features that I think are important to just bear in mind in that kind of very simple question. Thank you, Elizabeth. Your view, please. Yeah, I think this is a very, the particularity of it is important because the global um, pressures on believers will be so different. I would, you know, from a, in very Christian theological language, it's a kind of discipleship question. It's a um, sharing wisdom in your tradition. It's reading the scripture. It's seeking um, to follow the conscience, the voice of God, however you prefer to frame it. And I think that it is it's one, of the, it's one of the things that religious leaders have a particular burden of responsibility about as the people are who are most likely to be able to mediate with government and be able to, be able, be able to frame and um, to narrate the political situation for their um, followers. I saw one of the other questions about health messaging, you know, that, that, that the gatekeepers in religious communities have this incredibly heavy often responsibility um, to, to face both ways, to face to their flock and to face to the leaders of the civic space that they're in and be those bridge people who can ideally avoid those situations where you are looking at, do I break the law or do I betray my conscience? Um, yeah. Thank you. We have um, five minutes. Uh, I'm told that we have to stop sharply at uh, four o'clock. So I want to um, offer one last question, which actually connects a little bit with what um, Elizabeth was just saying. It's by Joe DiCarlo uh, from uh, Medical Teams International. Can any of you speak to the powerful gatekeeping role faith leaders have in a community in disseminating health messages and the importance of proactively engaging with them through methodologies such as channels of hope? I'm not familiar with it, but maybe uh, the three of you can, can speak very, very briefly, because as I said, we have to uh, finish it at four o'clock. So can I, can I quickly touch on that? I did try to send 
um, the response also, I typed it and sent it back to him. I think he's asking a very brilliant question. Channels of Hope is a methodology adopted and has been championed by an organization called World Vision, where basically it's the rereading of scripture with religious leaders and people. For instance, it started with HIV and AIDS uh, sufferers. And the idea was to reread the scripture, uh, the biblical scripture in a way that is very much from the lived realities of those living with HIV. It expanded to include issues of gender, uh, gendered identities, even Ebola, how do you live with it? So it, very, very um, crudely put, it's about re-appreciating re religious scripture in light of the rights of those who are most injured, most marginalized, most hurt in communities, so that it can counter a little bit of the more difficult narrative of, you know, you got HIV because you were mean and you, you, you were very uh, promiscuous and therefore that is God's judgment. It was about trying to counter that way of thinking and, and do it through the biblical narrative and text. And now it's being adopted by Islamic Relief. They've, they've figured it out. So they're doing it with, um, they've collaborated with World Vision to do this in a Muslim context as well. It's a, it's a beautiful methodology if you think about it. It's the oldest ways of reinterpretation according to lived reality and text for those who believe and want the text to speak to their right as opposed to speak to their marginalization. So I think that this is very much a, a powerful methodology that's that's increasingly being uh, also used in other contexts and, and, and it, it, it has as yet it's, it's been it's been lived in the context of the COVID crisis in terms of how it's been acted out by many different religious communities and religious actors together and it, it informs the interfaith because they're rereading their religious scripture from the perspective of living this COVID disaster. Okay excellent Elizabeth if you wanted to come in. Yeah I would affirm that I think Azar is much more um, an expert in this area but it you know, faith-based NGOs have been doing this um, forever. Um, you know, Tear Fund works very specifically with churches because often they're the best way into these communities. And we are seeing the international development world over the last 10 years move from being very nervous about using these channels to realizing that not using them is just throwing out the box. Jim. Yeah, I'd heard of that uh, particular methodology before. I knew that um, uh, faith leaders were very important in combating Ebola in terms of kind of the adaptation of death rituals and all the rest of it. But it, you know, it sounds to me actually a really nice illustration of the kind of ways in which we need to adapt our thinking and our modes of engagement. If there is, uh, to bring this full circle, a kind of post-secular moment um, whereby we're shifting away from just sort of simply narrowly uh, secular perspectives, which often represents in a lot of people's minds a, a, a Western perspective, towards recognizing that we're in a world where religion is present, religion is very diverse, where secular worldviews are also present, and where we have to create dialogues across one another, particularly on these issues of shared concern of which this pandemic could be no greater example. And, and that kind of translation of language uh, sounds, sounds like an excellent uh, example. Well, Jim, you have finished um, um, uh, on a perfect note, and uh, I wanted to thank you, Jim Walters, Azakaram, Elizabeth Oldfield, all three of you for your time, for your thoughts. Um, I found the conversation um, extremely enlightening and fruitful, and um, I want to ask our audience in their minds, perhaps, to, to thank you. Um, and I wanted to also thank everybody and uh, invite them to rejoin uh, LSE events, similar events uh, in the future, and also listen to the podcast and, and disseminate it. <laughs>
thank you all very much um, uh, and uh, see you soon. Bye. Thank you.